0: everyone i'm with old old friend danny goldberg and danny hasn't been around here in a while danny of rock and rolls r-o-l-e-s that great podcast that we had on but danny did for a while hi danny
1: hi ragu uh
0: danny went on to become a famous author uh, which he's been doing for many years but this latest book that he put out um uh, has uh piqued the interest across the world of people, press and everything, right?
1: Well, it's, it's a memoir of working with Kurt Cobain, you know, the singer from Nirvana. So he's so beloved around the world that, that, you know, I was able to get this book uh, published in like a dozen different languages. Uh, It's all a tribute to Kurt, but hopefully when people read it, they'll think I'm a decent writer.
0: Yeah, no, uh, uh, listen, I got to tell you that I, uh, you know, for these podcasts, I usually go in and I'll pick out a thing here and there. I got to run through the book because you know, I got too much going on, whatever. And, uh, but this one, I don't know why even it was more page burner kind of thing. I could, in other words, I kept flipping the page. Maybe it's all, you know, uh, it's, so it is well-written Danny. And of course, That's uh, a truism through all of the books that you've written and I've enjoyed them. But in this particular case, since we kind of renewed our, well, as far as you're concerned, started our friendship and other relationship business-wise in the early 90s after you just had left, uh, well, a couple of years after you left uh, management, left Goldman. Right.
1: It it covers a time in my life when you and I were not in as close touch it, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, it's fun to me that it filled in that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's correct.
0: Yeah. So everybody knows, I think, you know, we probably have talked about this before, but, it, uh, because of the subject matter and, and certainly the intensity of what was going on in the music business at the time and, and your, um, long time, uh, I mean the, the long time evolvement of a really uh, quite amazing career that you've had, and so just to connect the dots. So Danny and I actually, Danny, we met in a uh, with I was with Krishnas. We were having lunch at the this cafe where we did our first jazz record for Triloka on Sunset, the Sunset Grill. Used to go to lunch there, I think. So there you were. I have no idea, but we were introduced at that point. Remember? we met you uh you know, in the Hilda days, which was some yeah, I remember tour. the Hilda days,
1: you know obviously <laughs> I, I associate that more with New York because i I guess Hilda was in l a one one time I remember when I was there, but generally speaking, I it was all New York, yeah, Hilda Charlton with New York City and uh you know, that was such a she's a spiritual teacher that I learned about from Ramdas mm. and ended up deeply, deeply touching me and opened my heart to the whole idea of love in connection with you know God, you know, as opposed a to a path more intellectual or, or a thing. It just, yeah. uh, you know, I still she passed on in 1989 I think 88 or 89. I think about her still every single. Uh, day and the atmosphere around her was so kind of lovey and you know uh, I, I I just my memory of that is all um uh blurred into a big kind of pink <laughs> you know fluffy cow out. <laughs> yeah. But uh it's um uh, you know it's so great to have uh different levels uh to connect at God knows the uh, you know, uh the day to day life tends to uh go by very quickly so yeah 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 yeah. so all right
0: so here's what happened everybody so uh actually krishnas and i started a label named triloka and uh, david silver and i you uh we've done some podcasts you want to hear some of that music way in the beginning days of mind rolling uh but um at one point so this all happened. Danny left uh, Gold Mountain, his agency uh, uh, management group that uh, was basically, uh, you know, handled uh, Kurt Cobain and, um, uh, but at some point, you decide, and, and this is after Nirvana became huge, right? You decided to take up an opportunity to go into the label business.
1: Yeah, I had a personal management company. It was called Gold Mountain, and we had some wonderful artists. Uh, Nirvana became the most successful one because it, it was just the biggest act in the world at that time, in rock anyway. It had Bonnie Raitt for the, the, the records that she won her Grammys for and the Allman Brothers. But, you know, I was running a small business. My daughter, uh, my first kid, my daughter Katie, had just been born. And the stress of running a small business and the travel that management involved was just not appealing to me. And I got offered an executive job at Atlantic records. And I felt that, uh, that I could, uh, if I stayed there for a year or two, I could become president, you know, it just, that was the, the the glow of having worked with Nirvana was such a big deal in the music business at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and that, that, uh, that paid off. I, I was made president a year later. And, um, but but because of the relationship I developed with with Kurt, um, and the, the the quirky arrangement of the people around the band, um, I ended up uh, staying as one of the managers of Nirvana till he died. Uh, and my role was to deal with him. You, you know, my my ex partner John Silver, who today is an incredibly successful manager with the Foo Fighters and many other people. Um, you know, dealt with the other guys in the band and with a lot of the logistics of the management, but there were constantly kind of personal issues that came up and because of the way the relationships that evolved, you know, he wanted me to play that role. So i from Atlantic a lot of there's When I was researching the book, I found these memos written to Kurt and to Courtney. Uh, love his wife uh, uh, on Atlantic stationery. We'd have meetings at Atlantic, even though, you know, Nirvana was on a competing label on, on Geffen records. It just, it didn't matter. It was all about kind of the personal connectivity. So uh, yeah, I had, uh, I, I had kind of two jobs for a while. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah right.
0: that's right. You may have more than two now. <laughs> uh, Personally, I was. Uh, your job was to handle what you call what the personality issues, perhaps.
1: Well, there were personal issues that that just uh, that that he just wanted me. He wanted to talk to me about, you know, when you know there were when it was just about, you know, there were certain aspects, you know, of management which are logistical and planning a tour, interview schedule, and those kind of things. The old office would do that, but anything that was personally important to him and. Uh, and for better, for worse, mostly for worse, a lot of uh, dramas that came up, uh, uh, you know, and and so I stayed involved until he uh, until he died.
0: Mm. Yeah, and if you read this book, of course, because of this, Danny had uh, a tremendous insights as to the complexity of of the character of Kurt and the issues that he had, and uh, this book really. Um, uh, connects with all of that in a way that I don't think people have really, I mean, there's been other biographies of, uh, of him and um, uh, Nirvana and all, but uh, this is a unique view. Anyhow, back to my story. I want to talk about me. Good. Uh, so, so Danny jumps and he's at Atlantic and then uh, something happens, music business. One day is one thing and some new Blah blah comes in the head of it and decides to sweep the floor, so to speak. Anyhow, so Danny ends up at Polygram running Mercury, and uh, and hires David Silver, my erstwhile podcast partner. And although at that time, and Danny, to me, you were just you were the guy that I bumped to at Hill bumped into at Hilda's place, right? That's my memory of you. We say, we we really didn't communicate very much. You don't even remember, but I do remember you there. Uh, maybe it was around Led Zeppelin, because uh, Danny was a uh, publicist for uh, Led Zeppelin, worked with them for some time. And I had had this uh, experience running a radio station in Montreal with Led Zeppelin that was kind of embarrassing. And uh, I, I think I've told you many years later. Did I tell you that story of... Yeah. 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 With the, my brother cursing out <laughs> Led Zeppelin and we, I had to go over and apologize to uh, Robert Plant about that. Um, but uh, so for, this is my total connection with you. And David says, you know what, Danny really kind of likes the, the stuff that you're doing. And at that time, Krishnas was just coming out and starting to do chant records and, You know, we had some interesting stuff on on the world, more to the world music side. And uh, he said, why don't you just come in and let's talk about this. Anyhow, long and the short of it was that Danny offered a partnership uh, and uh, financing for Triloka, the label. And so there I was then doing bi-coastal back and forths uh, because Danny, by that time you would move back to New York. And so this is the tenor of the conversation, just so everybody knows uh, kind of what happened. I'd say, Danny, I kind of, you know, what do you think kind of budget I can have for this year with the, you know, is X amount of artists and this and that? He said, come up with a budget. We'll look at it and we'll see. So I came up, I got very expansive. I felt very expansive in that conversation. And I came up with a budget that was, way beyond what a world music record company should have gotten. Danny, he doesn't even call. He signs off on it. And next thing I know, here's your approved budget. It was like uh, I had gone to that, that pink, fluffy, fluffy cloud place. You know, so this was one aspect. So, you know, things evolved and years passed and Danny moved on. We moved on. Then at a certain point in the early 2000s, Danny was running Artemis Records, and he had some partners in financing and financing, and I was back in the same position of needing more financing, and he said, okay, we'll do it. But it was a lot more constrained. So I'm going to tell an inside joke, Danny. One day I went to you and said, you know, I got this really great group, yeah, as you know, whoever they were. But I really need, you know, we could use another like 50 grand in marketing money to really make this thing happen. It'll make our whole year, right? You know what you said to me? What do I look like? Your father? <laughs> uh, do you remember that? No. Oh, God. Who is it? I, why do I always remember that? <laughs> you know, it's... Who <laughs> so- I look like? daddy warbucks here
1: you well the, the, the business uh but look my own stat like i i've had a good interesting ride but it depends you know when there's money when you're hot you're hot when you're not you're not so when i was hot we had a lot of luck at mercury with some big pop yeah. Hansen records sold like 11 million records so there was so much uh and and in the corporate world you know you're obligated to reach certain budgetary targets and if you know that you're going to millions of dollars ahead of that it's like you know uh you could play with it and so there were a lot of that's when i made alan ginsburg's last record with triloka we made a a spalding gray record david silver by the way was involved in all of these projects because his role was to be involved with the things that i had an emotional connection to And then I had another part of my job, which was just to make money and to deal with, with whatever the commercial considerations were, which was not, so they, you know, but David also had this incredible personality that he could just connect with any artist. So he was, I always could trust him in any situation. So we were able to do it there. Then years later in the Artemis situation, uh, you know, I have a much more uh, limited uh, budgets And uh, depending on which year it was, they became incredibly limited. And the company eventually went bankrupt. It was started just at the beginning of the decline of the record business, when the uh, financial decline, when the uh, the digital world started eroding, you know, the value of recordings. So, uh, you know, it depends when some days $50,000 is nothing. And some days it's like an unbelievable fortune.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right.
1: And that's just the way it is I yeah. mean you know uh you, you know when 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 there's a lot, you don't think about it when there's a little, you think about every penny i you
0: know. yeah, right. and was it was a it was a fun moment, and I was thinking about it as the juxtaposition from the time that we first started and then into the early two thousands when everything changed of course um so one thing that's poignant uh in the book actually um of course, is the addiction.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's, it's really tough. And you, you're I'm, I found myself constantly going, Jesus, what, what possibly, I mean, you all tried everything, interventions, the whole nine yards, what possibly could have been said and nothing could have been said. Uh, And that's just, that is sort of the, the horror of it all. It, it just, I don't know where it comes from where somebody actually goes to, a, to the 12-step program and commits. You know, I've got a lot of friends who've done that and they committed and they've stayed there and uh, it's worked for them. But uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about what you felt was behind this with him.
1: Well, I don't uh, know uh, what to, uh, any answers about why some people, you know, the question you just raised is, 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 uh, is the unknowable question. Uh, firstly. Why some people become addicted and some don't? A lot of it, as far as I can understand, is is almost genetic, because it does run in families. Uh, drug addiction, and alcoholism, and uh, you know, I, when I was a young seventeen-year-old, uh, did uh, uh, heroin and and uh, and uh, methadone and and it, every drug I could get my hands on at that time. And by the grace of God, I didn't become addicted. I became crazy. And needed to stop and get some help, but but I didn't I didn't become addicted. Uh, other people become addicted, you know, very quickly. It, it, it's the it, it's human brain, you know, different. So um, I uh, I had been around by the time I, I worked with Nirvana. Um, you know, when I met Kurt, I was forty, and he was in his early twenties. I I had been already in the music business for twenty years, like you said. I'd worked with Zeppelin. I'd been around people with drug problems. And I was very anti-drug in my personal life by this time because of seeing the damage it did for people. And um, uh, But, you know, we found, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, about uh, uh, four months or so after um, Nevermind came out, which was the album that made Nirvana almost overnight, the biggest uh, rock band in the world, uh, based initially on that song, Smells Like Teen Spirit. You when know, they did saturday night live it was it was uh, there had been a couple of articles that implied he was uh uh doing heroin and then and then i went to the um, uh, set and it was just clear and we all just knew that day it was a bunch of people who worked with the band kind of that was the day we all realized though this is an extremely serious problem mm-hmm. so we did an intervention a couple of weeks later and talked him and courtney into going to rehab this is all in the book and and you know he struggled for the rest of his life you know, he lived several more years and was, he was clean for a while. Then he would do heroin again and then he was clean again. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, junkies tend to lie about this sort of thing. So I <laughs> always know just because someone said he was clean. But, you know, it haunted him for the rest of his life. Uh, he didn't take the 12 steps. Uh, some people extremely close to me uh, have had their lives uh, saved by this 12 steps. I'm a great yeah. advocate of it. But it's not for everybody. It's just one of those things. It doesn't work for everybody. Everybody doesn't get drawn into it. And all you can do is love somebody and introduce them to every possible uh, therapy that you can think of or find out about. Uh, Again, in my experience, 12 steps has by far been the most, but other people, it's meditation. Some people just get an epiphany. I think John Coltrane, I read, just one day just said, I'm done and just locked himself in a room, got clean and was clean for the rest of his life. Mm. Not people can do that. Mm. Uh, uh, uh kurt couldn't nor did he like 12 steps so it haunted it haunted his life and uh, mm-hmm. uh you know it's no different the emotional reality of loving somebody who's an alcoholic or a drug addict is no different whether they're a rock star or whether they're uh have any other kind of a job it's not about fame it's not about talent it's 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 a separate lane in the human experience and uh you know it's painful to to love somebody who's an addict uh, there's no question about it. Mm-hmm. And have to do the best you can but ultimately not responsible for someone else's behavior you can only be responsible for your own
0: yeah another thing that struck me though was the his kindness he had he uh, you know there's a lot of incidents in the book that you describe where he stopped for people that weren't necessarily going to help him on the ladder quote unquote
1: oh yeah no he was he was such a beautiful guy you know it's uh, not everyone who is very talented is is a nice person. Uh, you know, again, those two two separate parts of the human personality. And a lot of very talented people who one can admire, you wouldn't necessarily say that they're nice. But, you know, when I was doing the book, I, I I called a bunch of people who knew Kurt around the same time I did. I was trying to reconstruct things. And memory, as you and I just were discussing earlier, is not so reliable, especially my own. So it was great to talk to other people. And and everybody had a story about Kurt's kindness. You know, he was just a beautiful guy. His darkness was all directed himself, not to other people mm-hmm. in my experience. And, um, you know, I tell a story. In, do you mind if I just kind of...
0: No, riff away.
1: Riff away, you know, because I'm happy to slow it down. But, you know, I tell a story in the book where after he died, um, you know... Uh, we went up my family went up to seattle for the funeral a couple of days later and we get picked up by a driver and it's a woman driver and she says uh, are you here for for the funeral and i said yeah yeah and she said you know i drove him i drove kurt i said oh far out you know and she said yeah it was just a few months ago and and I told him, you know, my son loved Nirvana and loved him so much. My son's 14 and um, I was telling him that and he said, uh, well, where do you live? And I told him and it was it was not far from where he lived. It was on the way. And so he said, let, let's let stop at your house. I'll say hi to your son. And, and she said, no, 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 no. She said, no, 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 I, I want to meet him, you know. So, so she stops at her house, goes, gets her son. Son comes out, he shakes his hand. She said, and he looked at my son and he said to him, "You know, your mom's a really great driver." And then they drove off. And so we're all weeping, including her and all of us, with this story. You know, but that's that's uh, that was his day to day life. He didn't know she was ever going to tell anyone that story. You know, that was that was he was a sweetheart, beautiful, beautiful guy. Uh, incredible genius, you know, uh, emotionally damaged, uh, tough childhood, but, uh, uh, you know, um, somebody I really, really loved. And I just try to, you know, I had a particular relationship with him. It was one of his managers. It was mostly in the context of the business. I didn't do drugs with him. I didn't make music with him. Uh, I can only describe the part of him that I knew, like a lot of these genius types. He had a lot of different parts of them and I only saw the parts that he let me see, but but it's a different perspective than a journalistic one, like the other books that you're saying. And I did the best I could with it. You know, it's a funny thing. Now, what is art? You know, we, we talk about spirituality and then we talk about our day-to-day life and how art fits into this. I mean, I know you you and I have talked about this in the past, but where does it fit? It's somewhere in between heaven and earth, right?
0: It's a bridge. Yeah, it's, it's a bridge. A, it's a bridge. And, 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 Yes. Yeah, it can be if it's, if it really is transforming. I mean, I'm
1: and or, you know, the Beatles or in my yep. opinion, Cobain, it's a bridge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we've all had that experience, especially uh, being so in love with music and making it, uh, you know, a career. Uh, we've both had that experience uh, for me. It was, I tell this story a billion times, John Coltrane. Right. And seeing him live, I just was telling this to another musician the other day in a podcast. Seeing him live at 16 years old. So, my friend uh, who I did the podcast with, his name is East Forest, I, he said, Well, what song did he play? You know, and I said, My favorite things. And he went, Oh my God, you saw John Coltrane play my favorite things live?
1: That is amazing.
0: It is. And, uh, and it, it is what happened. I was transformed in that moment. I mean, I actually went out, I didn't know, I had no words for what happened. I just felt completely absorbed beyond any kind of thinking time and space. Right. And, uh, and I got to tell you this, I've been, you know, something like I, I tell everybody the other day in the last four or five days, somehow i got a link on you know how you get these links social media whatever youtube miles davis john coltrane live at the olympia theater in 1960 in paris okay fantastic first solo is by miles as usual and then coltrane does a solo and i tell you i got completely absorbed again through this thing that he does that nobody else does Mm. i mean except the likes of a hendrix you know that kind of instrumentalist and then i thought oh shit i would you know i thought i've been bullshitting myself all these years coltrane yeah i went you know like it was an intellectualization and i had lost the visceral thing of it and then i got it back through just uh, i'll send it to you it's phenomenal
1: i saw last night um there's a new documentary about David Crosby. Mm. Crosby, remember my name. And it basically consists mostly of interviews Cameron Crowe did with Crosby. And then some old footage. It's very um, incredibly honest and naked. And, and I, I think quite a good documentary. But in it, he talks about Coltrane a lot. And how almost his experience, really similar to yours, of what the impact that Coltrane uh, made on him. And, and he, he got to know Coltrane a little bit. But um, it's uh, it's just uh, it's just funny oh. twice in two days, um, mm. and the, 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 to hear about how music that was heard fifty or sixty years ago still matters in yeah. the, t- today, and that's, an, yeah. that's another amazing thing. Yeah. Because you think about uh, what else was happening in nineteen sixty. I don't know what was on television. I don't know. I know that was the year John Kennedy ran for president and was elected, so it's an iconic year for that. But other than that, I don't know anything that was happening in 1960. But we know that music is still mm-hmm. in the moment of relevance mm-hmm. to, to to you. And everything else from 1960 is like early perception. La <laughs> Americana. It's <even> knowable, <laughs> okay. you know, yeah, having,
0: right.
1: having any intensity. You know? Right, right. You go and research it, you're not going to even have it at the tip of your mind and no one's sending a link to anything else from 1960
0: yeah right (laughs) (laughs) you know the other thing the other redemption i had i have to tell you about in music it was bob dylan Mm -hmm. that scorsese thing you know rolling thunder
1: i was hoping you would bring this up oh
0: my god i mean i hated dylan because of what he did to me in the when he went through that Elvis phase and he, and he was like, he changed every melody and every rhythm pattern of every song. And it was awful. And he killed me. And from then on, I was really hurt because he meant so much to me when I was 15, 16. And in this thing, which he did in 1975, I, uh, the, I was riveted Danny by the, the every line
1: footage is mind,
0: mind blowing, Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: It's some of the best live footage I've ever seen. I was talking a, a couple of years ago to KD about Dylan. And he said, you know, when a new Dylan album came out, it wasn't just an album. He was telling us how to think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we yeah. Were talking about how to think about being alive. And it is just a weird thing. Other than Shakespeare. I mean, there's a small list of artists that penetrate that, that deeply. Yeah, I... I was so mesmerized, I was waiting and waiting for it to come on Netflix, and the first day it was on, you know I, uh, I I saw it and it just it just blew my mind, particularly the live footage. There are things about it that are a little odd you know, the
0: yeah thing- yeah the, the actual doc has some weird shit, but it's the live footage
1: it didn't work that's sort of twenty percent of it, but the other eighty percent of it uh, of of the document the document of that time is is just up there with. Mm. The-
0: yeah no absolutely um hey i can't uh, uh i have to ensue here with a uh, a little discussion of what's going on because i count on you for some real uh skillful wisdom around what's going on politically and socially okay yeah. so um so what happened is so i'm going to read a little of something and, and we can talk about it but Somebody wrote to Ram Dass, and I've asked, I've asked him if he, you know, he's, he's cool about me talking about it, uh, and said uh, a few things that were prompted by Ram Dass saying on a podcast where he was talking about Trump and how to love him and recognize he's in this incarnation, he's got this karma to work out. And uh, you know, what we need to do is just connect with his soul and if I was with him, I remember he said this to me, if I was with him, I'd really kind of, you know, help him along here to understand that, you know, get a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, And um, he said, you also talked about how dark the world is at the moment, more so than you saw in the sixties. So uh, he says with the internet, I think we have given form to our collective mind. Our consciousnesses are now all connected across the world. And we are beginning to see that we are like cells in a giant brain, universal mind, um, I have have begun to appreciate that Donald Trump's role, and he also mentions Boris Johnson, who just now is uh, uh, the uh, Premier of England, and almost identical figure, is their role is to act as catalysts for us to see our collective mind. Everyone's frustrated with, with them because they are not taking it all seriously. They're not playing the game and they are saying it is fake news and dealing with it as if it is. They are old star. They're like old style court jesters in Shakespeare's day who take over the throne when the king has become lost in taking himself too seriously and in folly. They talk gibberish, but their role is to wake us up. What I realized is Trump is waking us up to our collective, quote-unquote, mind chatter. We are stuck believing the media is providing us with the truth, but it is not. It is providing us like our own minds with subjective opinions fueled by drama. I had never questioned things like the BBC before Trump. I had assumed they gave me the quote-unquote truth, so I reflected that if they did not give me the truth, what was the truth? It came to me that the truth was, I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea. Just uh, is there,
1: yeah, Ramdas saying this, or someone? No, saying- no. This
0: is someone who's writing to Ramdas and and posing this. Um,
1: right. Got it. Got it. Got it.
0: What I'm, do you think so far? In terms of of.
1: It. I, finish it, and then I'll. Okay.
0: I'll, all right. Um, it's long, but everybody have some patience. Um,
1: I'm, I'm into it.
0: I think that that is the role of a Trump or a Boris. Can we love them? More importantly, can we laugh? I watch what a fantastic foil they are for our self-righteousness and anger. And I do love that. That is so true. It's beyond true. Everyone is so sure they are the bad guys and we are the good guys. Not only that, but they are highlighting our hubris. We are so sure we know what is best that we have forgotten that we are not in control of life and that it is perfect, but it does not conform to our notions of how it should be. I remember all your wonderful stories about Maharaji and your rascally friends undermining your wonderful plans and ideas about how it should be, like a friend coming in with muddy boots and treading all over your white carpet. Trump is certainly a rascally friend. I am not condoning his actions or suggesting irresponsibility or that it is not right to take action against what he is doing, but rather that we are not there to change him, but rather to be changed by him. When you consider the fact that there has never, this is something you've said to me, less war, less poverty, less violence, more international sense of connectedness, Why do we not feel that we are living in a golden age? I think it is like the pressure or crisis before a breakthrough in consciousness, like a collective long, dark night of the soul. I also recognize what is pointing at it is that our collective mind chatter is not a reflection of reality, nor are the emotions it produces. I think we are being asked to develop a witness that can stand back from identifying with it all and open our hearts and minds wider. I also, When he goes on to talk about the environment, that the current crisis is waking us up to the fact that the earth is our collective body, just as Trump is waking us up to our collective mind. Yet again, all we know for certain is that there is change. Whether we think that is a good thing or a bad thing is an emotional, subjective viewpoint. We are stuck thinking we know how it should all be and how it will be. But that is an illusion we don't know. We thought in the 80s it would definitely be destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. Coming up to the year 2000, we were certain the whole world would melt down because of the Y2K bug. Many believe in Nostradamus' predictions and so on. I am not suggesting or advocating that we do not take action, but that the crisis we face is there to wake us up collectively. And it goes on from there. I recognize, he says, that we need every point of view. We need a right and a left. In the same way, we need a right and left hemisphere in our brains. The creative tensions of these oppositions create consciousness. The left's truth is compassion and care for others. Its shadow is self-righteousness, dependency, and the drama triangle. The right's truth is that only we are responsible for ourselves and our lives, and we have to have discipline and recognition of limitations. Its shadow is cold-heartedness, materialism, and looking after number one at the expense of other. Each has to play its role, but can we do it with humor and love whilst valuing the roles others are playing? Trump is playing a vital role in waking us up. I think, like Judas, he deserves a huge compassion and respect for being willing as a soul to play these difficult roles for all of our benefit.:
1: Well, I think um, there's a lot in that, obviously, so I can't uh, unpack all of it in a linear yeah. way. but I can just sing a few things that occurred to me, and I'll see which ones I can now remember. Yeah. Are, um, one thing about That I think is important, this idea of change or not change, uh, is that there is both in England and America, a tremendous difference in terms of political opinions, of younger people compared to older people. And, you know, if, um, if only people under 40 had voted, uh, Brexit would have easily been defeated. If only people under 40 had voted, Trump would have been easily defeated. So, 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 So to the extent that there's something changing in the Western societies, you know, or at least English speaking ones, because I do think England and America are uncannily related. Uh, And of course we came as, you know, emerged from the British empire and, and there's so much connectivity there to the extent that there's change coming, environmental, technological population, who knows what else, um, trump is 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 represents resistance to change, not change you know um that's that's that to me is clear just based on that's where all the energy for him is from is from older older people not and all the, the energy against him is young it's, it's it's identical in England and America that phenomenon, so it's it Trump and the Boris Johnson thing, so that's one thing I would say, another thing. That I've been thinking a lot about. I'm trying to figure out what in the next book to do. So I'm <laughs> not able to do it. But I've been thinking about the relation between art and politics. And I've been looking at sort of an 80 year period, kind of from 1940 to 2020.
0: Wow. Because
1: 1940 was the year Charles Chaplin made The Great Dictator, which to me was kind of the first liberal Hollywood big statement. There were some in the mid-30s that were kind of political, but The Great Dictator was a direct commentary on, on Hitler, obviously, and the speech that Chaplin makes the first time he ever spoke in a movie. He was a silent film star before that, you know, is about that. And so the one thing about going back and looking at different eras is how things that we think are so unique to this period Mm. There's never been a time like the Trump era. There's never been a time like Brexit. There's This is unique because of the internet, because of social media. Nothing has ever been like this before. And that, I believe, is uh, delusional. I think uh, the fundamental emotional issues, fear versus hope, selfishness versus unselfishness, uh, coping with morality as a society, which is far more difficult than as individuals, all of these issues, racism, um, uh, you know uh, how to divide the wealth of a society. Um, uh, how, it, it, these these are uncannily the same. Uh, one thing I discovered, and I know this may be a little bit off point, but 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 it, it, it tweaks something in my brain that relates to this. Is so one of the things about Trump that we all were horrified by those liberals of us, and I'm definitely in that category, self righteous or not. <laughs> um, uh, was when he said, uh, "People are coming from Mexico. Is not sending us their best people. They're sending us rapists." And the image of the invading uh, brown-colored Spanish-speaking people who were literally going to be violent rapists. So, in in 1798, John Adams wanted us, the uh, America, to side uh, with the uh, um, to go to war against France in the wake of the French Revolution and Jefferson was in favor of the French Revolution, and this was the big divide in America. Adams won one term, and then Jefferson won two, and we didn't, in fact, go to go get involved with that war between France and England. But when Adams was trying to, there were all these um, uh, newspapers that were all like Fox News. You know, there was like, the idea that the, that the news has always been so objective, that's an anomaly. That was only in one period when we happened to have grown up. But in the 1800s, all the newspapers were partisan and made things up all the time. And in the pro-Adams press, they had all these stories that French had invaded America, burned down American houses, raped American women, and killed their babies. Obviously, none of this happened. France never invaded the United States, we now know. But that was the propaganda then. Then in the 1930s, there's a, a socialist named Upton Sinclair running for governor of California. The Hollywood moguls are freaked out at the idea of him winning because he wanted to tax the movie studios. So they create newsreels, which, again, were the Fox News of the time. There was no television. So the only way people could see visual news, the most powerful thing was newsreels, with actors and stock footage depicting Mexicans coming to America because Upton Sinclair invited them in and, you know, being violent towards white people. So <laughs> it's the same exact narrative in the in the. 1798, 1934, 2016. And yet we're so convinced that our time is so unique and that no one's ever had to deal with some of these things. So there is something um, that's Maya-like, delusional about the notion that there's something so different about this time. I think the fundamental issues of spirituality, of fear, of of, uh, compassion, of all of these different things transcend any particular time. It's like that, you know that idea of like now. I, I think is all that exists is like literally true. You know,
0: but but let me just say, uh, uh, in terms of the environment, though, we are at a critical mass point that is different.
1: Uh, there are there are a lot of things that are different. The nuclear age was genuinely different when mm-hmm. nuclear weapons, for the first time, physically, they were weapons that could destroy humanity. The environmental crisis is unique. Uh, the internet is unique. Uh, there uh, the 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 quantity of people in the world is unique I mean there are all sorts of things that are particular to this time, but the deeper things uh, that, that that about love and about trying to and ethics then the third thing that came to mind i'm sorry to just another lane is that is that is that is this word ethics because i've been thinking a lot about where do whatever these values come from the opinions should we help every should everybody be able to get health care or can we just not afford it? And like some people just can't get it and die young, and the rest of us do well because that's that's the least bad thing in in, in, the, in the kind of Darwinian you know notion of the you know strongest survive idea. And uh, and and where do these ethical values come from? And they like exist on some other plane. They certainly don't come from religion because you can have Christians that are very very uh, conservative and believe in Trump, and you have Christians that are pacifists and you know, uh, you know, a uh, socialist, you know, same with Jews, same with Hindus, Muslims, same with atheists. Um, so the, the, the spiritual definition that people have doesn't seem to imply any particular ethical side that one would be on. There's this other kind of discussion going on among human beings of, about ethics. And I've been trying to tune in on where, where does that reside? You know, where, where does that come from? Where does it reside? And, you know, like we we're saying, how does aren't to it. But all I can say is this, I think that um, uh, Ram Dass said something when Trump was first elected that I quote all the time, which was resist with love. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's still the answer. You've gotta stand up for whatever your ethical belief is. And so my opinion is, uh, you know, more aligned with, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren than it is with 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 Trump about the ethical a way of interpreting what political and social policy should be, and you've gotta love people you disagree with or else you're adding to the problem and it's easier said than done, but there's no question. So in terms of understanding who Trump is in the cosmology of the human race, I have no idea. That's like a electrical
0: capacity. You know what I love most about. Uh, by the way, uh, I should say that uh, the gentleman who uh, sent this along, who agreed uh, that it would be fine to read, is Nick Oakley Smith. Okay, thank you so much, Nick, because there are some provocative Brilliant. things in here. Yeah, well, well written, well said. Um, I guess what I what I vibe with is most. Is this notion of what he's doing, Trump, just by virtue of his incarnation, what he's doing and the actions he's taken? And uh, they're creating an atmosphere where we really are able to look at our own darkness. I mean, superficially, maybe it's this, you know, righteousness and um, we're right, they're wrong, polarized, you know, looking at our own way in which he seems to be living in this polarized place. that seems very self evident, and we are we are agreeing with him, yes, we are that
1: well i don't I don't know who what you mean by that well,
0: not agreeing. you know what I mean, we are following in that footstep by virtue of uh the anger and the separation that we feel towards for whoever has voted for him and um whoever are his supporters uh, that uh I, I do feel like what he's doing is uh pointing us to dark spots inside ourselves and i think well, that that that's well, part I mean, of I, what he's trying to say here
1: yeah i think i i don't think that's unique to trump i mean i think uh back in the uh, george w bush administration when the government of the United States had a policy of torturing people, uh, you know, and went to war for very dubious reasons, which to me it's never been justified. The amount of people that were killed in the Iraq War, the amount of people that were mm. killed in the Vietnam War, uh, were far, far greater quantity of people uh, by a factor of thousands compared to the people killed during the Trump period. You know, not that I'm a fan of Trump, but I, I think the idea that he's uniquely uh, playing that role is, is 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 narcissistic about the time. There's been people play that same role throughout our lifetime. Uh, you know, I certainly. Well, the of, end degree is Hitler, right? The well, end degree. My lifetime, but that was a yeah. huge. I think Stalin wasn't particularly great. Yeah, you we know, know about him. Uh, but in our lifetime in America, you know, again the Vietnam War to me was just. Um, you, you look back on it. The more the time goes by. The more I look at that war, the more incomprehensible it is to me how, as a society, we did that since it had nothing to to do with our security. I mean, today, Vietnam, we lost the war. Vietnam is a vacation place. (laughs) Americans go. It's like it didn't do anything at all. The whole, you know, and the number of people that died, it's unbelievably tragic the 57,000 or so Americans who died and the hundreds of thousands who were wounded, traumatized, and all that. But that's only a tiny fraction of the number of Vietnamese people who died for a war, the purpose of which I've never been able to hear anyone explain uh, why, you know, that was a good idea. And as far as I know from reading history, even if they went into it with good intentions in the middle of the Cold War and the struggle against communism uh, uh, You know when they first started Because you know, they had some reason to worry about the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union But by 68 Or 67, I mean all of the people in the Pentagon, McNamara, they all knew it was ridiculous And yet it went on for another Four years So uh, again, I'm. 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 Um, I think the idea of, of, of dealing with the Trump era for people who disagree with him politically, to me is. Uh, I'm. I'm all in favor of people voting, of people getting involved, of any kind of uh, service to the society, to shine light and to defend people, particularly people that are oppressed by government policies, such as uh, you know immigrants or. Women or african-american men walking down the street, you know worrying about cops or any of these things, but The idea that this is like some new problem that no one's ever had to deal with before is narcissistic It's not true. These are the same moral and ethical issues that every generation of Americans have dealt with I mean my goodness for the first hundred years 90 years of the country. There was legal slavery You want to talk about a dark time. I've just finished, a friend of mine has been written a series of books about the life of Abraham Lincoln. And I just read the one that's coming out in September, Sid Blumenthal, incredible books, if you like history, coming out, you know, leading up to his election in 1860. In the the 1850s, I mean, to be an abolitionist was to be considered a radical. I mean, you, you know, I mean, Lincoln was constantly saying, oh, I'm not an abolitionist. I'm just against expanding, you know, slavery into Kansas or whatever, because, You know, and the fact that civilized, it wasn't that long ago. So, you know, I think the human race has never had this utopian period. I think it's been this constant, the journey, and this is, we're in part of the journey, and it's got particular qualities to it, one of which is this technology, one of which is global warming, and all these other things. But these moral and ethical issues and how to, get political outcomes that are more moral and humane and how to love the people you disagree with and to have humility in dealing with it. All of those things to me would have been the same 50 or hundred years ago.
0: Yeah. Okay. I got to push back. This man and we're talking about the president is so inhumane. He epitomizes, he epitomizes the absolute darkest uh, inhumane Actions coming from such a you know a, a high level of of complete ignorance, um, that that to me makes enough of it. Uh, I mean, so this this uh, statement by Nick, this note by Nick, that he's you know he plays a vital role in waking us up, like very few others have. I think is significant and is not yes. In, in terms of historically, and what you're saying is absolutely true. But I think it's also true that this being has something in this incarnation that is he's powerful in his uh, ability to embody these really um, inhumane actions. And uh, I think that's a something that is different. I mean, you can, George W., you can talk, I mean, do you see that shit about Reagan? Apparently he called Nixon and, and just went on with like terrible epithets of racist epithets and so oh, on.
1: Yes, but Reagan started his 1980 campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, a city that was only known for one thing. There was no big factory in Philadelphia and it had one historical distinction. It's where the three civil rights workers Mm. were, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. And in his speech, he said, the South shall rise again. It was a naked appeal to the Wallace votes and to racists. He called welfare mothers, uh, he said they were welfare mothers with Cadillacs. You know, uh, uh, he was, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. He was, this idea, Reagan had a different style and frankly was a more effective politician than than Donald Trump he was much more popular than Donald Trump has ever been and and mm-hmm. and got a lot and 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 there was not a very effective resistance to reagan there is at least a resistance to trump but what reagan stood for was uh, reducing uh, school lunches you know where they said ketchup was considered a vegetable you know they <laughs> there was a minimum standard of nutrition you can go down yeah, you know, the list so that to find out that privately, he said a racist word to me is is uh, a lot less interesting than the result of those policies that uh, weaken labor unions and that, uh, you know, uh, he had a head of the environment, James Watt, you want to talk about global warming? James, do you remember James Watt? James Watt was Nixon's secretary of the interior. And they said, are you worried about the planet? It's not like in the eighties, people didn't know the environment was an issue. You know, Earth Day starts in the 70s. We, we knew by the 80s that, that pollutants and, uh, you know, losing species, and there was an environmental crisis in the world. And James Watt said, well, I think the Lord is going to come back in my lifetime, so why should I worry about the, the environment? That was the Secretary of the Interior. <laughs> so we Talk about how could Nixon hire all these people? You, 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 know, you know, look, it, this is not uh, uh, unique. I agree with with the idea that we have to look inside ourselves for how our collective uh, humanity creates these kind of leaders who are therefore on television and articulating these things and to look inside ourselves and to learn from them and the role they play in consciousness. I don't disagree with any of that part of it. I do disagree in in, in this exceptionalism of today. Yeah. That whatever it is today, we're convinced no one ever is going through what we're going through You know, I'm sorry, slavery was worse, (laughs) it really was. Women being able to vote was worse. And Vietnam Mm -hmm. was worse. And I think the Iraq war honestly was worse in terms of the amount of suffering that, that people in power uh, who American voters or the American system. It's not a democracy as we know It's this republic where you can have a minority of the vote and still gain power through our complicated system of of Government, so I I just don't like this exceptionalism because there's a certain um, Byproduct of it that makes me feel uh, uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, I think I think honoring that it's all part of God's plan and to understand what we need to learn from it is a great lesson and I think standing up for ethical values is vital if you're going to be a good person. And each person defines for themselves what that is. But, you know, mm-hmm. I putting a children, uh, separating children from their parents doesn't fit any kind of ethics I could.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: but yeah. I didn't invent that ethical value system, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, this whole thing boils down to how, because he talks about how each of us has a role to play. We each have a role. Correct. We are part of the whole and how do we do it with humor and love uh, while valuing the roles everyone is playing. That is the lesson of the the Bible lesson of today. How do we do this with humor and love?
1: And if you got to pick one, go with love.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm thinking, okay, here's, uh, here's a, you know, a bald face commercial. Um, Because when I think of humor and love, I think of Ram Das, I think of this movie that we're putting out called Becoming Nobody, which is going to land in theaters in uh, September, everybody. Uh, Go to becomingnobody.com and uh, you'll see where it is going to land. You'll see the trailer and so on. But such an essential part of this movie is humor and love. And hopefully some of that will rub off on all of us. Uh, so that we we can get our perspective a little more um, spacious around all of what's going on, and again, Danny, I always count on you to give us a little bit more of a wider perspective on, I'll tell you this, on this.
1: If we're, if we're uh, I'm, I, I will just say that that one of the things that I'm really inspired by are these uh, young people that are in Congress. Mm. You know. Mm. Uh, you or young know,
0: people in general yes young too. People
1: in general absolutely and you know aoc i was talking to my son you know he says like lebron james you know he gets into the nba and immediately is the best player and this is someone who, you know who i mm. think is quite brilliant she's gonna make a few mistakes and has made a few but it's not just her there's like 10 or 12 of them mm. uh that that to me can 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 navigate in the modern world in a way that some of the older ones uh, can't, we may have an older candidate and I'm for whoever the Democrats nominate, no question about it. But I, uh, I do, I, I am a little excited by, by the younger, uh, younger energy. Uh, Mm, That's great. I really think they're going to, they're going to save us.
0: (laughs) Okay. I, I'm going to go along with that motion all the way uh, because unfortunately, as you know,
1: no matter what, I mean, love. I i can't always find it in myself, but I <laughs> want to.
0: But as you well know, I'm from Canada. I'm Canadian. So I'm how... Quebec. The, the Quebec. Je, suis, je viens de Quebec. Je suis Quebecois. Uh, and I always say, well, if if things, stupid things, like, well, if he gets elected again, I'm going to go to Canada. I can't. Stay here. Another four years. So th- so happens recently, I met with a very close friend of mine who is this actually uh who uh is the ceo of canadian broadcasting corporation and which is a government agency and she's you know she's in that circle i said what do you think is going to happen in canada with you know trudeau and everything who seems so uh, open and workable caring kind of being she said, no, nah, he's going to be gone. We're looking at the next Trump for Canada. That's coming up next. I go, are you kidding?
1: Where am I going to go?
0: So me, the truth is, there's nowhere to go. Well,
1: there's nowhere to go, but there are, on one level, there's nowhere to go because we're always ourselves. But I, I think that the most right-wing Canadian, still to the left, of the <laughs> left-wing American. <laughs> i'll agree with that okay you i'll know, agree with that trudeau's uh liberal or whatever you call the what what is this party the labor what, what's the party called that he's a part of
0: no it's a liberal
1: Party. and then you had these other uh plenty
0: conservative, conservative
1: yeah but with even the most conservative prime ministers you still had uh, nobody with the college debt of hundreds of thousands of dollars uh no one with uh, uh, healthcare going bankrupt because of health care uh you still had support for the arts uh, maybe better in some and less than others but always better than the united states so mm-hmm. uh, uh you know i uh i i don't know it's the road not taken for me and for you really in terms of 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 the uh of, of canada it's a pretty interesting uh, uh society i wish i uh knew a little more about it i'm always mm-hmm. happy when i get to go there uh, <laughs> for a few days yeah you know? Uh, and I, I always get there a couple, a few days a year, you know, but yeah, you know, um, it's a, uh, do, do you get home to Montreal much anymore?
0: Not much left? these days, you know, because I'm oriented now uh, out West and uh, with Ramdas being in Maui and all of that. So yeah, not much, but uh, I still have family there and so on. So um, I want everybody to know Danny that uh, on the show notes page for this podcast. They will have links to uh, not just this latest book with uh, around Kurt and Nirvana, but other books that Danny has written, uh, and um, and also we're going to put up we'll put up a podcast or two from your podcast with Be Here Now Network days
1: okay? well, from Rock and Roll. I, one podcast, I, I, I whatever you feel is appropriate is fine with me, and I. I missed doing the podcast. I just, I just found it was. I, I, I ran out of people to talk to. <laughs> I didn't find new people to talk to. I didn't have a. I didn't. I, I didn't have the, the beacon over my head that you do. But I, um, uh, uh, Paul Kraft passed away. I
0: uh, know, and I saw you wrote a beautiful. You that the piece was beautiful.
1: And I did. I think two podcasts with him. I, the very mm. first one I did. Was oh,
0: that's him. great.
1: And I did a second one with him, and um, you know. Uh, The the very first one I did, though, was with Paul. And, uh, you know, the book, um, uh, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 The Hippie Idea, which is kind of my subjective history of the year 1967, not that I was part of it, but I was a fan of it. It's the year I graduated from high school, is dedicated to Ramdas, Wavy Gravy, and Paul Mm,
0: Krasnick.
1: So, so, uh, mentioned paul was a great being anyone who's not familiar with him uh, google him and it'll lead you to some interesting places you
0: know i was uh, in the back in the day when i was a program director for the radio station uh, ckgm in montreal and i lived maybe four blocks from there in westmount and one day knock on the door i opened the door it was paul krasner i didn't know him from adam He was looking for me. He went to the station. They told him, yeah, no, here's his address. He's home. (laughs) And then we sat down and talked for a long time. It was an amazing guy. Really amazing. Thank you for this.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, my pleasure. Uh, The thing about why I, those three, certainly Rondas is in a category all of his own, but so many people out of the 60s became embittered or became Mm.
0: tragic.
1: They died young or they became grumpy as they got older. And those to me like the good examples when they're well into their 80s just shining light notwithstanding disappointments and External changes in their physical bodies their their status in the world The the light was a continual flow and it's great to have uh, examples like that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely absolutely well, again, thank you, thank you for being here. This is, you know, this is, you know, this is a great chance to hang out and just do what we do normally, and then we'll we'll share it out there. So, uh, thanks so much uh, again. Mind rolling. BeHereNowNetwork.com, and you go to the show notes, and we'll lead you to all of this wonderful material. And we shall see you uh, next week. On mind rolling.